Welcome to the Legacy Makers at Work podcast. I am Liz Stern, and this podcast is for Gen Xers and aspiring leaders in mid-career seeking to create an intentional work legacy aligned with your personal purpose and vision while in the midst of a busy, complex life. I'm here with my co-host, Phyllis Weiss-Hazaro, and our guest, Glenn McDonald. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to have Glenn as our guest today as I've known Glenn for over 10 years through impact investing and a shared desire to make the world a better place. I have found Glenn to be an excellent example of someone who has forged a broad and multifaceted path in his work life journey, all while staying true to his core values. Glenn is a senior vice president of Morgan Stanley offering private and institutional investment advisory services including comprehensive wealth planning, socially responsible investing, and philanthropic solutions. Glenn is also the chairman of the Wealth and Giving Forum, which he co-founded in 2004. The forum promotes values-aligned and strategic capital allocation among families and private foundations seeking positive and environmental outcomes. Glenn is a recognized leader in the impact investing and philanthropy fields, His views on industry, markets, and financial management have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Financial Times, and the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Glenn was a recipient of a Ford Foundation Fellowship at the Harvard Center for International Affairs, a Chateaubriand Fellowship in France, and a Fulbright Scholarship to conduct research in Mexico. Glenn also serves on the boards of the Borough of Manhattan Community Foundation, the board of the Intentional Endowments Network, and on Rising Tide Capital Strategic Advisory Board. And lastly, Glenn is a passionate wine connoisseur and recently attained the Wine Society Education Trust Level 3 status. As someone who has worked in legacy development for many years, I have been impressed with Glenn's purposeful intention in both his work life in finance and in leading the Wealth and Giving Forum, providing the opportunity for values discussion and problem solving to create a more inclusive and humane society exactly what we need right now. So welcome, Glenn. Thank you, Liz. It's great to be here. Great to be with you and great to be with Phyllis. Great. Thank you. Glenn, it's such a pleasure to have the opportunity to get your perspective on developing a work legacy and your journey thus far. My first question for you is how do you define work legacy and how would that definition be evident in your journey? Well, you know, it's interesting. In all honesty, it probably didn't come to me truly until my mid 40s when I was a partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers and I was realizing how I was increasingly dissatisfied with the way I was feeling every day at work. And it nagged me. And, you know, I kind of fell into management consulting because I enjoyed problem solving and I enjoyed the intellectual challenge of working with businesses and their issues because it was intellectually challenging and the analytics were rigorous and I enjoyed that, but something was empty inside. And I realized that I had gotten too far away from my purpose, which was to what you said about me in the introduction. I always viewed that our role as people were to help others. And I always viewed that our role as community members was to lift up those around us. And the way I developed analytical skills was through an academic career that I started because I really felt that the way to solve problems and create opportunities for people was through understanding uh, the way the world worked the mechanics of policy, the mechanics of economics, the mechanics of business, the mechanics of nonprofits, 
And so I pursued a PhD and, you know, became smart in the particular area that was relevant to the management consulting field. And then, you know, my management consulting field career took off and all of a sudden it was all about the mind and nothing about the heart or the way you felt. So in my mid forties, I just decided I have to get back to basically who I am and, and what I view as our life's journey on this planet, which is make a contribution and leave the place Whatever you do in any way, smaller, medium, or large, leave where you are, your community in the world, a better place than in which you found it. And it's actually how I connected with a philanthropist and launched the Wealth and Giving Forum. And I took sabbatical for three years from my private sector career. It was, you know, a huge challenge to leave, you know, what was more financially rewarding and remunerative, but I did it. I just, I said, I just, I can't wake up and live my life in a way where it's all about money and, re and financial results and where there might be good people and intellectual challenges, but I'm not really living the purpose I thought I was, you know, brought here to be. And so I, I shifted, you know, in, in my mid forties and, and changed careers completely. And, you know, nothing's a straight arrow, but if your legacy is mostly about how you feel about yourself, it's not what other people say about you. I think that who you owe an answer to at the end of your life is yourself. And I just didn't want to get there and say, you missed it. So I took the risk of changing my trajectory in my mid forties and look, it's not a straight arrow. It wasn't easy, but you make it happen if you really believe in it. So let me stop there. Great answer. Right. Uh, and you covered some of the things that I was just going to ask you, but there's plenty more. And I've got to say that, you know, listening to your bio, there's a lot of really fascinating stuff in there. And also what caught my attention was the part about the wine. Sometime offline, we'll have to talk about, you know, my, my most fun client about 20 years ago, which is a, a wine magazine and the American Wine Competition. And I was on the board as well. So that was wonderful. But I think that's sort of a tangent here. So let's, let's if, well, say two things about wine. First of all, it's not a tangent because it taught me so much about life and purpose. Um, and we can get back to that later. Oh, yeah. um, or I could do it now. I think um, now. All right. You can you can do it now. I, I, I'm wondering if these these changes and things that you went from one thing to another were an epiphany or some challenges that impacted how you, you think about legacy. You, you explained at least a part of that and also about what you consider your core values. Uh, you were saying that people were more important to you than analytics and that you were more drawn to things of the heart than the mind. Yeah, and you could be drawn to both, but at the end of the day, I think it's your heart and your belly that rules. <laughs> they say we have more neurons in our, you know, in our gut than we do in our brains. And I, 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 the, the older I get, the more I absolutely do believe that. You know, the epiphany, I'm fond of epiphanies, and part of the Wealth and Giving Forum was creating an environment in which people could have epiphanies about what their wealth meant to them. Because if they figured out what their wealth meant to them, that you could not become strategic and effective unless you had meaning, unless the money and its use had meaning. 
by the way, Liz was a great collaborator of mine at the Wealth and Giving Forum, and I invited her to join the Wealth and Giving Forum as a, a senior team member because I understood that she realized this, that you're going to get a much more effective and strategic philanthropist or impact investor if they understand the purpose of their money. Mm-hmm. Once they commit, everything falls into place. But it's like anything in life. If you don't have a strategy and a game plan that's authentic to who you are, you sub-optimize the outcomes and the results. It's the same thing is true in investing, impact investing, and philanthropy. And the Wealth and Giving Forum was fond of creating environments where people could discern for themselves what their money was all about. And that requires these epiphany moments. And it's like my epiphany moment one day, I said, I can't go back into a corporate environment and help the executive figure out how to turn out more profit. And I don't have anything against profit. It's just something I didn't want to do anymore. I I needed to feel that I was making a direct impact on people, places, or the planet. I love Mm -hmm. those, those three Ps, right? That's what it's all about. And, you know, and that's what I started joining nonprofit boards. I started volunteering. I started mentoring kids. I accelerated the wealth and giving forms after that. So, so I hope that answers part of your question about, about epiphanies. But look, I discovered wine when I was living in France in my early 20s because I was mentored by somebody who owned a lot of wine shops. And every Sunday he would talk to me about wine. And I was drawn not just to the flavors, but the wine is a food. It's a, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. source of nourishment that comes from the earth. The more I got to talk to winemakers and the art of winemaking and the challenges associated mm-hmm. with it, and the vicissitudes that come from weather, which you can't control, it's a metaphor for life. It's a subject that no one can master. Just like it's hard to master yourself, wine taught me just what nature is truly all about and our intersection and interactions with it. So part of my passion is not just, and Liz knows, sitting down with the right bottle that matches the the mood and and the food, but it's about the whole culture, agriculture and food culture around wine and man's relationship. I mean, that's why we have uh, years on the bottles. Well, exactly right. You know, you can take the same exact wine from the same producer made from the same grapes and taste them in 2014 versus 15 versus 2006. And they just will have a a different flavor and it creates this real intrigue. And it's when art interacts with nature that and man that creates the subtleties that make life interesting. It's never, talk about never being bored. You just can't get bored with wine because there's there's so many facets to it. And it's something you said before about people being more concerned about the impact of their their money as a as a person who focuses on different generations and different generations at work in general right. the young people are even more than the older generations really concerned about knowing what is the impact wanting to know that that is something that they want to influence and that they want to be hands-on involved in things, not just writing checks, I think, more than the older generations. And you're, you're seeing that. Yeah, I'm impressed with, you know, the younger generation, the 20 and 30-somethings, I really am, for exactly what you outlined, Phyllis. They, and, and by the way, you know, I've learned that in two ways. One, through my work with uh, families. It's amazing. It's We see it in the stats, but I see it in the examples of families that come to me and say, 
listen, my children have told me that I have to think about the impact of my investments on the on the world, on the planet and people and places, getting back to those three Ps. And I don't know anything about it. Can, can we start to have a conversation? And it's, you know, it's e- either, and sometimes it's in families that have invite their you know, younger generation to come participate in the family philanthropy or the family's private foundation, if they have that sort of wealth. If they don't have that sort of wealth, but they still have a good amount of money to manage, maybe the children aren't necessarily directly involved, but they're influencing the attitudes of their parents. You know, it's kind of like a Crosby, Stills and Nash song, you know, teach your children, maybe teach your parents. I'm dating myself. Exactly. That's, that's a 1970s <laughs> group, but they're well known. And I believe that. And then talk about teaching. And Liz knows this very well, because she's met my wife and some of my adult children. I've learned from them. My, my daughter and her son-in-law live south of Charlottesville, Virginia on a five-acre sustainable farm, and they make their own food. And they wouldn't harm a mosquito that's about to bite them. But they're living what I kind of got into first intellectually, and then through that epiphany to get back to who I was, back to my heart. But I wasn't living it because the mode for us was a little different. And, and the wake up that I think the, this generation is giving us about the way they choose to live and the ch- way they choose to spend their money is, is just, it's a reflection of them. I think our generation maybe had to relearn it and they started right off the bat that way. Who knows why the financial crisis of 08, 09, or just what they saw in, with 9-11? I'd have no idea. It's a combination of things, but these cultural trends basically shifted for the positive, I think. Yeah. And it's not only with family wealth, you know, it's, it's the kind of things that they want their employers to be. Well, exactly. And exactly. giving them time to volunteer with. You're 100% right. They're pushing employees to accept diversity and inclusion, to treat everybody well, for pay equity, for, for things that, actually things that are common sense, but we just learned part of our our system and patterns were even unintentionally without trying to do so, learn aligned that way. And I appreciate what the next generation is doing for us. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Glenn. I mean, I think that they are leading and teaching us by their own setting their an example for how they choose to live and how they choose to interact with society. My daughters are constantly teaching me about the language. They're very, very specific about the language for everything. If I use a term and they feel it's either past or not the correct one today, they correct me immediately, you know, and they'll say in a text, did you, did you mean this group? And I'm like, oh, yes. And they're like, okay, then this is the term. That's not the term. Yes. And it's been, it's been fascinating, but it's also about how they look at how clothing is made, how everything is, how we get our food. It's fascinating how they're really forcing a reckoning with all the past or the traditions of what has happened and gone on before us. You're right. You're so right. My daughter, Claire, she's just, if something is made with any chemicals or from a place that where she knows people are not being treated well in the making of that, she just won't purchase it. <laughs> so, um, but I love it anyway. It's and I know your daughters are are that way, and and I'm glad you can confirm from experience what I'm experiencing with my kids. Yes, I, I know yes, definitely. Yes, absolutely. And so another question is, were there any pivotal moments after you made the transition to starting the Wealth and Giving Forum that encouraged you to pivot again? Yes. But when we founded the Wealth and Giving Forum, the gentleman who financed it um, and had the idea for it was mainly interested about, and he, he saw great wealth around him, like that those that he had, and he thought that giving back was the right thing to do. But at that point, this was in the late 90s, early part of the turn of the century when he was thinking about these things. 
impact investing and sustainable investing was a small, you know, arcane, off the beaten path conversation among the folks of wealth. He was really basically talking about philanthropy and charitable giving and the, and the like. So when we curated our first event back in 2004, it was a three-day event. Vartan Gregorian of the Carnegie Corporation, bless his soul, he passed away mm-hmm. last. That soft spot in my heart for him. He was the first speaker we ever got at one of our forums. And we had some great philanthropists come and tell their personal narratives about, about philanthropy. And it was motivating and inspiring and innovative and types of philanthropy. But we didn't have one speaker about social entrepreneurship, about sustainable investing. We did in our second event, we had a side panel on social entrepreneurship but by Liz, as you know, by 2013, 2014, what philanthropists do and what impact investing is all about is now part of a, a holistic continuum. So by 2006, 2007, we pivoted and said, this is not about philanthropy. This is about money. This is about money and how it circulates in our society. And, and as Ross Baird, who set up a venture capital to bring uh, capital to communities outside of Silicon Valley, Boston, and Austin, Texas, to the communities like Joplin, Missouri, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana, has said, you can't think and behave this way with one pocket and another way with the other pocket. It's all one. And I subscribe to that. So the the pivot, to answer your question more directly, was to just not stay locked into, this is about making money and giving away when you're in your 60s, 70s, and 80s. This is about being all along the way with money in everything you do, understanding what its consequences are when you use it. Because look, we're fond of saying in the impact investing place, every time you invest or buy something, you're having an impact, whether or not you know it or not. And why not understand that and make different choices? Okay. I think you've, you know, I was curious about what surprised you about your career so far, but I think, you know, you sort of covered that. So do you think it's more important than ever to think in terms of work legacy by mid-career? You said it, you didn't really think about it until your mid-40s. And one of the things we think is very important is for people to start thinking by mid-career and by Gen Xers, that's, you know, why we think, and it, it's not that it's so much the characteristics of the gen, Generation X, but that they're in their life cycle at, at that point and in their career cycle. And they are or, you know, will be the next leaders by age and experience. So, you know, you don't wait till you're in your 60s to think about how you want to be remembered, but to be intentional about about now. So, you know, back to do you think it's more important than ever to think about your work legacy by mid-career and or is there a time when it's too early or too late? Well, that's a great question and a really interesting one on so many levels. On the one hand, work legacy of each and every one of us cobbled together and rolled up creates a certain type of of world. And given the challenges of climate change, which I think are real and serious uh, on so many levels, my hope is that people will come to terms with purpose because I think when they do, they'll realize their relationship to others and communities, nature and the planet 
and that'll help the cause uh, of our existential crisis that we're facing. So my hope is that, yes, that it would come sooner. And I think it's important at that macro level that that happens. And that's a consciousness shift that I think happens to happen collectively. On the other hand, from experience, my own personal one, and just mentoring young folks and through the wealth and giving form, I learned that everybody has their moment. You know, some people, uh, there's this one philanthropist I, I love, her name is Angelica Berry. She runs the Russell Berry Foundation. Russell Berry was, you know, made trolls and made a lot of money and was a generous guy and loved kids. And he set up a nonprofit with the money he made when he sold his toy company and she took it over for him. And, you know, I met her brother and he said to me, you know, some people become philanthropists. My sister was born one, right? So that just happens sometimes. And I remember when we first started convening the Wealth and Giving Forum, Bill Gates had already set up his foundation at the age of 45 and, and he played chess with Warren Buffett. Everybody was asking, why doesn't Warren Buffett give his money away? And you know what? He was working on other stuff. And then he wound up giving his half of his, his wealth away and inspiring with Bill Gates, you know, the giving pledge, which is huge in terms of consciousness among the, the wealthy about their duty and responsibility. So I have to subscribe to the fact that everybody has their moment. And, and by the way, Warren felt his purpose was to continue to do what he does and accumulate. That's fine. I don't think we should judge is my point. And I do think that people have their moment in time when this deep-seated heart belly purpose comes to them. I, you know, I think about my four-year-old grandson, like, and how joyful he is in nature down in Southern Virginia, but I have no idea when he's going to ask that question and, and about purpose and internalize it. <laughs> Could he be 11 or 24 or 33? It, it, you know, it's who knows. And I just think we have to, there's a moment and a time for everyone. And I think people are doing it earlier and earlier. I agree. So Glenn, I just have, I have another question for you. Was there ever a story or a particular experience that clarified the importance of legacy for you as you've been creating this life well-lived? Well, look, and, and by the way, for everybody that's going to listen to this, this is not a setup, but <clears throat> I'd never thought about the word legacy so much. Well, there's two, okay? There's two. One of them was with you when we, we first met and we decided to have lunch together. And I did not know this story about, you know, Noble. He didn't want to be remembered as someone who created dynamite and made money from it. And so he, he read, uh, I guess you told me the story. You could tell it better. He read somebody's obituary and said, oh my his God. His own obituary. His own obituary. Who wrote it for him? The, it was like the, his brother had passed away. His brother's name Ludwig and he had, passed away about 10 years before Alfred actually did. And they mistakenly thought it was Alfred who had passed away since he was the older brother. And they published his obituary and the title of it was Creator of Dynamite and Weapons of Mass Destruction is Dead. That was, it was like, that was it. Think about and that he was, title. <laughs> it was pretty bad. And the entire, it was apparently like a half page of front page of the French paper. And there was, he had no redeeming qualities in this obituary, none. He'd never married, no children. You know, I mean, they went through everything in his life. So they, you told me that story over lunch and I'm sitting here going, Glenn, you're, you're supposed to, like you're convening these folks at the Wealth and Giving Forum and helping them curate conversations that'll help them align their money with their values and create a legacy through philanthropy and impact investing, so forth and so on. And you, 
you've never thought about it. You've never gone off and reflected yourself. Like, why not? You don't, you don't have to be a billionaire to do that. You, at any level, you can just decide that legacy. And so that was a very, I got to, you know, I, this was not like, this was not a setup since you're running the podcast. This just came up in conversation, but that was an interesting moment for me. Like, why have I never thought about what people would say with me when I move on, which is a very helpful thing to to, to help you pinpoint it. So thank you, Liz. And the other the other story is when at the very first uh, Wealth and Giving Forum at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia back in uh, October of 2004, our first speaker, and this was by design, was our opening keynote was a philanthropist. His name was Ken Baring. He was a very wealthy guy, Horatio Alger story, grew up in the 20s in the depression, used to shoot squirrels in, in Montana to feed his family, I wound up selling used cars, Became an entrepreneurial businessman, went from used car, 18, he set up his first you know, used car dealership. Then he went into uh, new cars. Then he realized the real estate underneath his dealerships were worth more. And he got into real estate, became a billionaire, was hunting, used to hunt with King Juan Carlos of Spain because they met through something and he invited him and that sort of guy. And he said, he's telling this story to our, our audience and we had some very serious business people and wealthy people in the room. And he just said, you know, and then I went to Romania to hunt and I got invited by the, the leadership of Romania to visit some charity work. And I walked into this hospital and I saw this, this person looking sad on the floor, um, not moving. And they, I said, what, what's wrong? You know, what's going on here? And he said, well, he's paralyzed through a translator. Well, why doesn't he have a wheelchair? And he said, well, a wheelchair costs $125 and that's, that's a year's of food for him. And so he can't, you know, he can't afford it and we can't afford it. And he said, that's crazy. He went and bought a wheelchair. They lifted the guy in. He rode around, smiled for the first time in a long time, and then started to get out of the chair. And they said, wait, where are you going? He goes, well, I'm giving back the chair. And Ken Baring said, tell him it's for him forever. The, the guy burst out crying. And so did Ken Baring. And he told this story to our audience and he looked at them. He leaned into the microphone. And he goes, don't do what I did. Don't just accumulate and wait till you're 74 to find purpose and happiness in life. And I looked around the room and everybody, including myself, was, you know, kind of emotional. And if there was ever a message about, and Phyllis, this gets back to your question, is I hope people can find it sooner because you can miss it. You can miss it if you don't. So I just think that's an incredible, incredible story that I've never forgotten. And that was in October of 2004, Liz, probably about, you know, eight years before I met you. Yep, that, that is very emotional. It is very emotional, even here. Well, I want to ask you, is there, and if so, what is an important problem for now and post-pandemic you would like to have a significant part in solving? Is there something you've been thinking about? Yeah, you know, look, i I've always been concerned about nature and the and the planet, and I I'm on the you know the board of the Intentional Endowments Network. Roots are in having higher education step up to leadership on sustainable environmental practices and aligning their endowments with a healthier healthier planet. That's those are its roots. It's it's broader than that now, but I have to tell you that my pet issue that drives me uh, really really crazy sometimes. And, and it's been, it's actually been lifelong 
from the time I moved to Greensboro, North Carolina at 11. And it was, you know, 1968. And I, I saw the, the tension and the challenge and the misery on the other side of the tracks, what we called the other side of the tracks back in the late 60s. And that's the racial inequity and the hatred and division in our society. And, and most of the nonprofits I've been involved with have to do with creating opportunities for young adults who are or on the other side of the tracks or in that wrong, what they call the wrong or challenged mm-hmm. zip codes. And most of them are people of color. I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me for us mm-hmm. to be living in a world with such wealth and, and opportunity and to see the hate and division yeah. and killings of people of color. It just boggles the mind. And it doesn't make any sense. It, it's something I cannot fathom to understand why it's this big a problem. So if there were, for, for me personally, that's where I'd love to see healing and progress on. I love to hear that. And, you know, again, I think maybe we have some hope with the younger people because they don't seem to see it in the same way. I agree. My most hopeful moment was after what is now officially a murder, George Floyd's murder, mm-hmm and the protest around the country, I flipped on the pages in the New York Times of every city and to see so many multicolored, a lot of white young folks mm-hmm. in my town, they marched from Plainfield, which was a hotbed for you know, riots in the late sixties when there was you know, the racial issues back then. They walked from Plainfield through my town in Westfield and Governor Murphy came and spoke. And I went and I watched them march. And it was just so heartwarming to see people of all ages, all colors, all styles participating. Because, And that's what gave me hope. Because we can do this. Because there are so many people who want it. They want that better, more just, less divisive, we're all one harmony in our society. That I believe it's the majority that want that by leaps and bounds. I totally agree. That's right. And, you know, you just look at their relationships and who who they spend time with. You know, it's not as if you see only white people walking down the street anywhere with only white people or only right. people or Asians or anything. And I just feel so strongly about that as well. Well, the other thing we have to understand is the people that inflict that hate and the, that harm are, and this is, look, one of my favorite sociologists growing up. And so the intellectual side of me is, you know, the, the intellectual curiosity and the pushing that envelope doesn't hurt by any way, shape of the imagination was uh, Emile Durkheim, who was the French sociologist in the 19th century who predicted the rise of what we call psychosis in modern society. He saw the, the way in which interactions would create tension. And, you know, a lot of these people that, are, that hate, they have their own somehow or other trauma through life experiences that are built up inside of them. And that toxicity manifests itself in, in mistreatment of others that don't look sound and hear and, and walk and talk the way they do. It makes no sense, but it's a reality. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's like you say, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. Trauma in one place can lead to trauma in another. Uh, look, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Mill Durkheim, but I admire the sociologists who understand this and hopefully some policy prescriptions and what I like. And this gets back to some of the things you guys have talked about is the millennial saying, you know, it's not just about the policy and government, it's what we do at our workplaces. And so the millennials pushing corporations to adopt ways and policies and attitudes and cultural mores that will not have such trauma that manifests itself from, from the way people interact with one another. Right. 
And yeah. I think Gen Z even more than millennials. Yep, maybe. So Glenn, where do you think you are now in your journey on your work legacy journey? And what do you see as your next steps? Well, look, you know, I'm really in a good place because when I first started into the investment management business, which emanated out of my experience with the Wealth and Giving Forum and realizing the power of private wealth to whether or not if somebody has a small amount or a large amount, but the choices we make every day with our money is getting back to that thesis, that if I could uh, place values in the context of investment decision-making, that not only would you get better better returns and can circulate more capital because you've got better returns, but you actually are, are also getting a social and environmental positive environmental and social return for society. Like, why wouldn't you do that? And, and when I first came into this, I'd say that maybe 10 or 20% of my conversations every day were, or, you know, or every year were associated with that. And now it's almost a hundred percent. It just gives my work wow. so much joy and, and to see that progress because it's not just me. It, it's actually the fact that everybody's starting to talk about it, right? And everybody yeah, wants to understand awesome. it. And so, but it makes my work more, more enjoyable because when you're talking to folks, look, people want to retire comfortably. People want to uh, make sure that they can mitigate lift through life insurance. They want to make sure they can save for uh, some special trips or finance uh, a yacht and, you know, whatever, if they have that level of wealth. But, and those are things we still have to work on. But when they are also talking about making sure that their, their investments aren't financing things that are toxic and unhealthy for the planet and communities and finance and instead making money by financing things that are going to make us happier, healthier, and more inclusive. It just makes the work more enjoyable and actually makes the, the, the investors feel better about their money and the conversations with their advisors. So, so I'm in a good place. There's total alignment now. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying mentoring you know, some of the junior members of our team on this because they're excited about it and imparting my experiences and hopefully in positive ways on those around me. I've narrowed, you know, we're less active at the Wealth and Giving Forum. I've scaled back a few of my nonprofit board duties to focus on this work. I hope that's a good answer. Every answer is a good answer. <laughs> Absolutely. And yours are great. So lastly, what tip or takeaway do you want to leave the audience and your followers with today? What call to action? One of the things I try to tell, because I sometimes ask, get asked by you know, parents to talk to their 20 or 30-something folks about finance or about career trajectory. And I was actually speaking to um, a young woman some weeks ago who was concerned that she had invested all this time and effort into a career and a, a training and, and a master's degree. And now she didn't know if she wanted to do the work. And one of the things I've learned is that nothing is wasted. Everything is leverageable if you just take it for what it is and what it taught you. Because I do believe that skills and knowledge and experiences are so transferable and so are networks. And so if you do have that epiphany at some point and it means that you have to do something else, well, then so be it. Go with it. And you can figure out a way. It's not the, the, the label of I have a master's in X, so I have to do A, B, and C. That's not really what you got when you got that master's degree. You might have gotten the opportunity to learn how to learn or learn how to analyze and take it somewhere else to a different place or how to interact with people, how to build team. It doesn't matter. You can take it somewhere else. And if that's where your purpose that you start to feel drives you towards, go do it. And this is getting back to wine. This is what winemakers do, right? They say, this year, we had to pick early. The grapes are going to be more concentrated. 
we have to do X, Y, and Z, or there was too much rain and they're too limpid. So we've got to make sure that we only take the best berries. Every, every year they have to work with what nature gives them and, and go with it and make the best possible wine for that particular vintage. But it always has its use because every meal has a different type of wine it needs. So nothing's nothing bad, everything is good. So that one of my favorite expressions is, Sometimes you have to give up who you are to become who you want to be. And it's hard. It's like a reptile that has to shed its skin. It's okay. Just do it. Yeah, yeah. Got exactly. Space to allow that. So, so Glenn, how can listeners reach you? Well, look, Liz, as you know, I'm a consummate networker almost to a fault. Check out my LinkedIn page and shoot me a message. Perfect. Okay, we'll have that in the show notes. That's great. You know, this is very healthy and you guys um, were very generous with me and your uh, kind words at the beginning. And um, and I really appreciate, Liz and Phyllis, what you're doing to bring thoughts to and circulate them because ideas are the, the fruits of, um, of, of many good outcomes down the road. So idea sharing is so important in our society. So I appreciate what you two are doing. Right, well, Thank you. we appreciate hearing that from you too. So thank you, Glenn. And thank you to our listeners. We ask you to let us know what you've heard in this episode or previous ones that you found helpful towards shaping your legacy. What, what questions would you like us to ask our guests? What's most helpful so we can continue a meaningful conversation with you? Please go to our podcast website, that's LegacyMakersAtWork.com. And Legacy Makers has a hyphen between those two words. Um, and you'll find more information and show notes. And also, do subscribe to this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And then please write us a review. So thank you. Until next time.